Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Matthew Booker, Vice President for Scholarly Programs at the Center, and your host for this episode. When the Panama Canal opened in 1914, it was widely perceived to be a marvel of modern engineering that revolutionized international trade. It was accompanied and made possible by another impressive feat, a massive public health effort to control tropical diseases like yellow fever and malaria, which were endemic to Panama and the surrounding region and were seen as a serious problem for settlers from Europe and North America. Our guest today is Paul Sutter, professor of history at the University of Colorado Boulder, where his research focuses on the history of the American conservation movement, the environmental history of the American South, and transnational environmental history. As a fellow this year, Paul has been working on a new book tentatively titled Pulling the Teeth of the Tropics, an Environmental History of the U.S. Sanitary Program in Panama. Welcome, Paul. Thanks. Great to be here. Paul, how did you come to this topic? 25, 30 years ago when I was just starting graduate school, I read the the great old book by David McCullough, the the wonderful popular historian called The Path Between the Seas. Uh, It's kind of an epic history of the Panama Canal. And so many people have told this story as an epic one, uh, as a heroic story. And I was really struck in that story, uh, not only by the engineering achievements that allowed for the construction of the Panama Canal, but by the the public health challenges that both the French and then the Americans faced in their efforts to to build the canal. And particularly how uh, the Americans couched those challenges uh, within a, a sort of discourse or discussion on the tropics as a geographic space and as a, as a repository of a set of environmental challenges that were really critical to the success of that canal project. And this struck me as important in part because today we think of the tropics largely what I would call the environmentalist tropics. That is, we think of the tropics as incredibly biodiverse and rich. But a, a century or more ago, the dominant impression was that the tropics were dangerous and diseased and resisted the efforts of particularly temperate world American, European peoples to move into and control those regions. And so that was going to be, as the Americans understood it, one of the great challenges of constructing the canal, um, dealing with the hostility of this tropical environment and the diseases that were seen as fundamentally tropical. Now, the Americans went in and had an advantage that the French didn't have when they tried to build a canal in the 1880s. They went in in the early 20th century knowing that malaria and yellow fever, the two diseases they most feared, were mosquito vector diseases. That is, mosquitoes spread them from one person to another. The French had not known that throughout most of the 19th century. The dominant way of understanding these fevers was as miasmatic, as emanating from tropical environments and certain kinds of conditions within tropical environments. Malaria mostly coming from swamps and and vegetable putrefaction, as they used to call it back then. And yellow fever often had a much more urban profile, so the understanding was it was coming from human waste, slaughterhouse waste, other kinds of filthy urban conditions. And so the Americans, knowing that mosquitoes spread these diseases, had much more success in controlling them though that's only sort of the beginning of my story. Um, I'll just say that, you know, one of the things I discovered in, in looking at these diseases and how they actually operated in Panama is that they were much more complex than this sort of 
describing them as tropical suggested, that they weren't in some ways part of the nature of the place so much as they were products of the environmental disturbances created by canal construction. That's a, a sort of a gross generalization. Both of these diseases are incredibly complicated. But the Americans were, were having problems with them because of what they were doing in the environment, not because of the environment itself. Um, so to take the example of malaria, for instance, the mosquito that spread malaria in Panama, uh, Anopheles albumanus, had a very particular set of habits and, and conditions in which it bred and thrived. It particularly liked fairly clean water open to the sunlight that had algae growing in it. Um, the sunlight was critical to that. And those kinds of bodies of water tended, I mean, swamps could produce these these mosquitoes, but also in a landscape of canal construction, there's all kinds of digging going on, and as, as a result, all kinds of standing water. Now, the other thing to understand about mosquitoes, and I know more about mosquitoes than anyone probably should, particularly as a humanist, is that um, in natural bodies of water, they tend to be controlled by fish predation. So particularly troublesome places of mosquito breeding then were places that did not have fish within them. And so one of the things I discovered, and I discovered it because a lot of people who were paying attention in Panama discovered it themselves, particularly a bunch of entomologists and others who were working for them, was that the very conditions that were most conducive to breeding these mosquitoes were the conditions of canal construction itself. Um, the digging of the, the, the cuts, you know, a lot of times there would be massive landslides that would clog water courses and, and create artificial swamps. One of my favorite examples is that as the U.S. was dredging in from either side uh, of the isthmus from the, the Atlantic and the Caribbean, they would sort of shoot this muddy slurry out of the bottom of the canal cut onto adjoining land. And as it, it dried, and particularly the top dried, it would crack. And you could, if you could hang above this, these piles of deep mud, you could look down and see in those cracks standing water. All right. So mosquitoes were breeding all over this landscape, but they were breeding there very successfully because of the changes Americans were making in the landscape. Yellow fever is a very different disease. It's an urban disease. The mosquito that, that spreads it, Aedes aegypti, breeds almost exclusively in, in artificial containers. And the Americans were able to discover that the primary concerns in Panama were, were really two. One, that if there was debris around households, particularly tin cans or, or crockery containers or things that collected uh, fresh, clean water. Those were ideal breeding places for this particular mosquito. It's a paradomestic mosquito. It, it sort of co-evolved with humans and human habitation. But the other place it was breeding very successfully, and this was true of other places where yellow fever was a problem as well, was in a, um, a water collection system that without centralized plumbing. So Panamanians, particularly in the rainy season, would collect water from gutters into barrels. They would then scoop water out of their barrels or, or dispense it into these crockery containers called tinajas, which um, allowed the, the water to cool because they sort of sweat. But this whole infrastructure of water collection um, was absolutely perfect for the breeding of this mosquito. And um, yellow fever would often be introduced from other ports in the Americas. But because native Panamanians, and that's a, that's a pretty capacious category at this point, were living in the midst of, of these mosquitoes and fairly frequent interactions with yellow fever, they would often get and suffer from very mild cases and then be inoculated against it. 
whereas outsiders coming into the into Panama who had not been inoculated against yellow fever, and if you get and survive a, a case of yellow fever, you're immune for life, they were very vulnerable to yellow fever. So the Americans went in and, you know, yellow fever for so long, they thought it was a disease of filth, and a lot of people had a hard time letting go of that, that sense. And the idea that if you, you know, wanted to bring in sort of plumbed water and sewerage into houses, that was often seen as a response to filthy cities. But in this case, it was really about getting rid of uh, a fresh water collection system that had been critical to breeding this mosquito. Now, the Panamanians weren't too interested in having this happen, in part because they weren't really that concerned about yellow fever, uh, and in part because it represented the destruction of, of a system that they had invested a fair amount of capital and energy into. So here you see a real tension between an American effort to get rid of a disease that they sort of pitched as a universal public health achievement that was really a much more instrumental effort on the part of the Americans and particularly, you know, to protect particularly white outsiders from a disease ecology in this place that was hostile specifically to them. Paula, a cartoon version of the story you just told, especially the first part about the role of canal construction in creating conditions that would then lead to more mosquitoes that would then impact canal construction might be a kind of ironic story. And environmental historians have often leaned on irony that environmental history is the story of people doing one version of it, people doing things to the world which then bite them in the butt. I know, though, from your own work and from your own efforts over the years that you're interested in maybe not quite in what Hal Rothman once called a post-ironic environmental history, but certainly in stories that are more complicated, as in the example of the yellow fever story. How have you gone beyond or are you interested in a story which goes beyond irony in telling this somewhat familiar story about the Panama Canal and in a different way? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I've I've written much more explicitly about this in my previous work on soil erosion in the American South. Um, But I think it's a really good question for this project as well. A lot of irony in environmental history is rooted in these really venerable categories of nature and culture that are at the center of the work that we do. And you're an environmental historian, too, so you know this very well. And and I think what I'm really trying to point out here is that this discourse on the tropics made these diseases seem a part of the nature of the place, but it was really, in some ways, the cultural conditions, uh, the conditions humans created that created the disease problems. Yes, so... On its surface, that's ironic. But what I really want to do to push beyond that is to get us to recognize, in some senses, that we need to see diseases, disease in general, particularly at this moment in time, as these really complex assemblages that that are not merely natural and cultural, but this mix, this entanglement of the two, all right? And so, for instance, here, it and other historians have done this in ways that I, I'm trying to push back against. It's not merely that the presence of mosquitoes determined disease, all right? It's the sort of deep history of the various species that are involved in creating the conditions that allow for these diseases to thrive. So let me give you an example of of the yellow fever story. And this is stuff that I've found uh, mostly by reading the work of scientists that I find incredibly fascinating. So yellow fever is a disease that we generally think of as coming from Africa. And phylogeneticists tell us today that both the virus and the mosquito that spreads it in the Americas 
are African in origin, these incredibly powerful tools that phylogenetics are now bringing to history, among other disciplines. And so we know that, that these, both the virus and the vector, moved from Africa out into the rest of the world. But what I discovered is that the Aedes aegypti mosquito, though it evolved initially in the same place as the virus, left that place, migrated to North Africa during a really wet period when the Sahara ceased to be a desert thousands of years ago. And then when Africa dried out again, it resorted to breeding in these human containers in North Africa. All right. So it had been what's called a tree hole breeding mosquito. That is, it bred in water that would get caught in tree holes in forests. And as such, it may have spread, you know, sort of primate diseases, but not yellow fever because yellow fever hadn't even come along yet. And so this particular mosquito co-evolves with humans in North Africa. Meanwhile, the virus develops maybe something like 1,500 years ago and likely spills over from primate populations into human populations in West Africa. And so then the question becomes, how do the virus and the mosquito meet? And where do they meet? And almost certainly this happened in the context of the slave trade. And I, I think what I'm showing that other historians haven't pointed to is that the mosquito and the virus weren't together to begin with and, and merely transported across the Atlantic, that they actually may well have come together in the context of the slave trade. That yellow fever as we know it, that is, as a combination of, of the virus and the vector spreading the disease among humans, may not have existed until a set of conditions in the Atlantic world allowed these species to come together and plague humans. And, and what's so fascinating about this to me is that we know through retrospective diagnosis, that is, historians, medical historians, going and looking at primary source evidence and trying to find clear signs that of a disease existing in a place, we're pretty confident that the first cases of yellow fever, the first epidemics of yellow fever, exist in the Americas, in the Caribbean, in mainland Mexico and Central and South America, around the middle of the 17th century. There's an epidemic from 1647 to 1652. We don't have the first clearly confident retrospective medical diagnosis for yellow fever in Africa until the late 18th century, more than a century later. Now, that doesn't mean yellow fever didn't exist in Africa before then. But I'm starting to think that the particular manifestations of epidemic yellow fever, urban yellow fever, as um, we call it, may have really come into existence in the Americas as a result of the virus, the vector, and a set of specific historical conditions, including the urbanization of port cities that came with the maturation of the sugar economy. This was a disease of history, of things coming together in space and time. And so the categories of pure nature and pure culture just don't make sense in this case, all right? There are, are natural things going on, but there are also cultural things going on, and the disease is the result of this complex assemblage. So, of course, I am deeply interested in all of that, as you say, as an environmental historian. I'm also struck by the two-way street that you have just described. On the one hand, your interest in and attention to scientific writers – um, phylogeneticists, amongst others, who are essentially discovering the evolutionary history of these diseases. But on the other hand, the interpretive gloss that you provide as an historian 
to historicize a disease. And I'm wondering about the implications of that. Um, I know your book isn't out yet. <laughs> You're here to write it at the National Humanities Center. But are you finding any interested takers or do you think you will have one, uh, have them in the medical community? I mean, the idea that yellow fever is not some ancient, timeless plague of humanity, as I have previously encountered it, to be blunt with you, yeah. um, this is quite interesting and also potentially revolutionary. Yeah, so I, I think I think it's hugely important. And, and obviously, in the context of COVID, I think this is it's a really critical conversation for us to have. Because we're still attached to these concepts of nature and culture, we're often really fascinated with with what I call spillover narratives, right? You know, to give the example of COVID, it's the the disease coming out of nature into this market in Wuhan, if that's where it originated, and into history, right? And I think that's much too simple a story. I think on the one hand, it treats everything before the market as nature and everything after the market as history. And what I'm really trying to suggest in the case of yellow fever is that yellow fever has an African history, that the, the mosquito has a history, that the virus has a history. There's actually a whole, what's called an intermediate cycle of yellow fever uh, transmission that only occurs in Africa today, where, by the way, yellow fever is resurgent. No one's talking about this. And so I think we have to historicize what we usually naturalize, these spillover narratives. And then we have to recognize the continuing entanglement of environmental forces in our lives today. So one of the examples I, I like to use is this remarkable book by a, a scientist whose name is Jacques Pepin, not to be confused with the famous chef, called The Origin of AIDS. And it's really one of the, I think, the best books on this kind of set of issues. And he really shows, yes, AIDS probably emerged, you know, there's what's called a hunter hypothesis, that it somehow someone hunting primates cut themselves, the, the virus got into the human. But it's as if that that moment explains everything else, all right? But, but what he shows is that there's so many contingencies from that moment to a full-blown global epidemic that to, to somehow give huge explanatory causal force to that moment is to miss all of the other moments along the way the sex trade in, in West African cities. He actually argues that AIDS is best understood as an iatrogenic epidemic, that is, needle spread, that it may well have had to do with mass vaccination campaigns in West Africa where they were not practicing good needle hygiene. So here you actually have a public health intervention that is on its face, and I, I don't want to make people scared about vaccinations here, but... Um, you can't just sort of say the disease becomes historical when it comes into humans. And you can't dismiss all of the environmental history of disease after that moment. These are really entangled processes. Diseases are incredibly complex. They cannot be reduced to the virus or the vector. They are products of, they are constituted by the social conditions, the historical conditions that produce them as well. So you've spent much of a year here at the National Humanities Center. And no doubt, since the moment you arrived to today, you've had encounters with new sources, new readings, perhaps even conversations with other fellows. Are there any in particular that jump out to you as particularly inspiring or I might even say disturbing? Anything yeah. that, that, that has changed the, the, the arc of the work you're doing? Well, interestingly, this year I've really been working on the first two chapters of the book, which are much more cultural, intellectual. They're much more about the ideas of the tropics. And I will say one of the great experiences of my year here 
has been that we sort of, thanks to the sort of deft selection uh, of fellows by you and the selection committee, there's a group of us who are interested in, in the tropics and ideas of the tropics. And so we've constituted a reading and discussion group where we're sharing work with each other, and there are seven or eight of us doing this. And so that's been a great part of my year here is having the ability to converse with other people and, and several fellows whose work is we're basically looking at the same sources and and it's been really fun and exciting to sort of shoot each other emails when we find something that we think someone else might be really interested in. So that's been one of the really wonderful generative qualities about my year here. The first chapter of my book is actually about the Isthmian transit period, which is not something a lot of people know about, but basically from just before the discovery of gold in California in 1848 until the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad across North America in 1869, the fastest way to get from the East Coast to the West Coast was across the Isthmus of Panama, and to a certain degree across Nicaragua as well. And so during that roughly 20-year period, hundreds of thousands of people are crossing through Panama across the very path that would become the canal path. And this path, by the way, was also roughly the same path that the Spanish Empire transshipped huge amounts of mineral riches, gold and silver, from um, the South American empires back to Europe. And so it had been a crossroads for hundreds of years, 400 years by the time the Americans went in there to build the canal. So it's a very cosmopolitan place, a very well-traveled place. And so I was, re I was really interested in using this Isthmian transit period, and particularly the diaries and, and publications and letters of gold rush migrants, to create a composite picture of how temperate North Americans and to a degree Europeans as well, traveling through Panama, conceptualized it as tropical. And so that's been a big part of what I've been doing. My second chapter has really evolved since I've been here. And it was it was one of those one of those chapters in a book where you you're like, I know I need a chapter to get me from here to there, but I don't quite know what it is. And I guess I would say part of the gift of this year to me has been to really explore what this chapter could be. So I've done a huge amount of reading. But what this chapter has really become is a, a sort of broad overview of 19th century ideas about race and the tropics and how they played out both in the sort of long process of the Americans coming to build the canal, but also in other ways, in, in ways you know, of thinking about how particular environments shape or determine human conditions. So for most of the 19th century, there was a powerful intellectual, pernicious and powerful intellectual tradition of environmental determinism. And um, it was a tradition that saw white people effectively as belonging in temperate environments and non-white peoples as belonging in the tropics. And so that set of ideas is at the center of this particular chapter, which has just, you know, it's been a kind of rabbit hole year and that I've gone down this rabbit hole and, and with wonderful, fascinating results. You know, looking, for instance, during the mid-19th century at various colonization schemes, you know, Abraham Lincoln, for instance, and other members of his cabinet, thinking about the ways in which the tropics could be a place to colonize the freed people in the wake of emancipation under the logic that somehow their bodies, their constitutions are better suited to tropical places than they were to temperate places. And by the way, solving what they saw to be an intractable racial problem that would come as a result of emancipation. So these colonization ideas, these ideas that black people sort of belonged in the tropics were really prominent in the middle of the 19th century, particularly in, in, in the midst of the Civil War in ways we haven't even 
haven't even recognized, I think. Or maybe the better way of putting it is a handful of scholars who I've been reading a lot of this year have recognized it, but maybe the broader uh, mainstream in American historiography hasn't recognized. How those ideas about the tropics and race shaped a real souring of American attitudes toward, towards Latin America across the 19th century. There's been some really interesting historiography on how in the first part of the 19th century, the United States looked to you know what the historian Caitlin Fitz calls our, our sister republics to the South as part of a broad egalitarian Republican experiment that was playing out in really exciting ways throughout the Americas. But that as the 19th century progressed and as Americans became more expansionist and more racist, perceptions of Latin Americans changed dramatically. All right? And I'm going to argue, and others have argued, in ways that I think have really important implications for how, in the years after the Civil War, Americans become imperialists in Latin America, racially and civilizationally dismissive of Latin American peoples for reasons that have a lot to do with this logic of the tropics. Not only that the tropics are a place where certain races belong, and in the middle of the 19th century, there's a debate between monogenous and polygenous. Polygenous believed non-white races were created separately from the white race and designed to live in these places. Monogenous believing that the different races differentiated themselves over time because they were adapting to their environment. So environment is part of this racialized thinking in really critical ways. So, you know, a lot of what I've been doing is, is really looking at how ideas of race, place, disease, and environment shifted across the 19th century, and how these ideas of the tropics really flow into the effort of the Americans to build a canal at the beginning of the 20th century. Ideas, for instance, about who's going to do the work. Just this morning, you know, I'm looking at this report by the Isthmian Canal Commission written based upon a two years of exploration between 1899 and 1901 about where to build a canal and effectively saying, of course, the climate and the environment will prevent uh, the Americans from using white workers in this place. They'll have to be non-white workers. And of course, the white people can, can supervise. Now, these are pernicious and spurious ideas. I want to make that really clear. But for me, as an environmental historian, what's really important here is that there are the product of a kind of racism that is rooted in environmental thinking that we really need to be much more aware of, I think. The science that would play out in Panama in terms of coming to understand these diseases in new ways, by the way, would I think help us to begin to undo some of these connections. And so I think that's another important part of the story I want to tell, that, that science has a role to play, you know, even though science contributed in some really negative ways to the blossoming, the fluorescence of scientific racism across the second half of the 19th century, it was also scientists who began to really pull apart that ideological apparatus and make a space for racial egalitarianism in the 20th century. That is the sort of complicated and profoundly useful history that I find most appealing as a humanist. So thank you, Paul. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.